0: And welcome to the Bull Street Podcast. I'm Tim Kurtz. This podcast was designed to equip you to know Christ and tell of his amazing grace between Sundays. For more information about our church, please visit bullstreet.org. We know that the two things you're not supposed to talk about in social settings are religion and politics. The sentiment being that it's impolite to bring those things up because they could lead to disagreements and make people feel uncomfortable. I think through this summer at Bull Street, during our summer series on Wednesday nights, we've seen that actually sometimes talking about difficult topics, subjects that we have really deep-seated opinions about, can lead to a greater sense of community because we're being more authentic with one another. Last week, I had the privilege of moderating a panel on politics, and the local church. The panel was made up of Pastor Andrew Lucius, Charlotte Fowler, Roger Stevens, and Jenny Valucius. I was blessed by our conversation, and I pray you will be too. Thank you so much for being willing to participate in this topic of all topics. Um, to get started, though, yeah, let's go, let's go really broad. What is the government's role, or what
1: should it be? All right, I'll start us. And we'll just answer generally, because you could be more specific in yeah. different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, the government's role is to steward a society that's based typically in geography, and to do so in such a way that brings about an order for human flourishing?
0: That's a really good answer. (laughs) Does anybody want to contribute anything different from that?
2: I would add, and justice too. Uh, I think their role is to keep things just and not just order, but justice as well.
0: Okay, so would you say that government was instituted before the fall as part of our mandate to have dominion over creation, or is it a necessary evil that kind of came
1: about once sin entered the world? I'll I'll start us again. (laughs) Uh, It has to be something that's pre-fall for a couple of reasons, but the primary one, and I would also root the government pre-fall not just in a dominion mandate, but also in a lordship that God has over all of creation. And it has to be seen as something that predates the fall because uh, when we talk about sin, fundamentally what we're talking about is a rebellion against a king. And so his political kingdom is what Adam and Eve and then the rest of us are rebelling against. And so we need to understand it as God's kingdom, his laws, his place, and the sin that came after that was a rebellion against his government. That's good. So how did the fall affect government?
3: (laughs) Well, when I hear you talking about that, I would say yes, in the sense that there is a king and he has established his rule and the rules of his rule um, before the fall, I would say. But after the fall, what we talk about government now is very different than government as it might have been defined before the fall. And in that sense, I think what you see, uh, an anthropologist would talk about that humankind is trying to organize themselves in such a way and create laws in such a way to bring about order and to bring about governance and to bring about rule of power, actually, if you look at government from a totalitarian sense. And, you know, as believers, what we see is all of laws post-fall Are trying to correct the problem of sin and address the problem of sin and how we protect justice and how we protect property rights and how we protect human rights. But what we see as believers is that the problem of sin is not a government problem, it's a spiritual problem. So we can, between the already and the not yet, we can say, yes, this is what has to exist to try to address those things. But ultimately governments can't address those things because our hope can never be found in a government addressing those things because they can't be addressed politically. They can only be addressed spiritually. So we find ourselves in sort of this strange already but not yet is wanting to be recognizing governments as per scripture and being under the laws and being faithful stewards of that order but yet at the same time recognizing that so much of human law is to is addressing the human heart and that can't be done by man that can only be done by God.
0: Would you say that uh, in this time that we live in that justice is the primary role of government. That's kind of, Jenny, that's what your gut answer was. Do you want to expand on that, Any?
2: I mean, the world is full of sinners, so I would say the government's role is to stop people who are speeding, arrest people who do bad things. So I would say there's a justice component as well as order. Not necessarily it's the government's primary role over the church. To kind of add to what Charlo is saying, along with government is an attempt to do things the way the Lord would have done them. I would say kings and rulers and politicians are the same way. I think we have to view them through the lens of the gospel. There won't be a perfect king. There won't be a perfect president or a perfect ruler or a perfect politician. There will be flaws and there will be Good things and I think we have to look at every single one that way even if their campaign sign is on our front yard we have to be able to view them through the lens of the gospel primarily I'm jumping ahead a little bit but <laughs>
0: that's right that's good
4: well and it's about the same token I think that um, and I better, I've got to say something so you know I can't talk <laughs> <laughs> um, politics in themselves that we've spoken about here um, we should pray for our political leaders we should uh, be aware of what is going on and, uh, and be very conscious of it, but not to the point where we uh, it occupies our, all of our thoughts and becomes divisional, because that's the problem right there. Our real purpose uh, is to provide in God's house the saving of souls. And if we are divisional in the way we handle all of this, then we are going to discourage many people. So I think that that's... Uh, a situation that we need to, to constantly pray for and uh, but by the same token be aware of the fact that uh, it can be divisional and we could have a situation where we defeat our purpose and our sole purpose and that is to recognize our lord and savior he loved us we need to love every face that we look at here let that come across from us as church members and have that feeling, but by the same token, make sure that our behavior, as we we don't get into arguments and debates about the way politics are or who our politicians are, but pray for them and avoid any uh, thing that could be a cause some dissension in the way we uh, address that. I think that's so good. Um, I think prayer really helps ground us in
0: seeing both the good of image bearers. Well, all that would affect
4: our witness and what uh, yeah. we're trying to do, yeah. bearing on our witness. So,
0: Well, let's, let's pivot on that a little bit toward the American church. So we find ourselves in the United States in the 21st century. How have the political particulars of our country uh, affected the church, so I'm thinking still very big picture of classical liberalism, uh, post-modernism, we are a world superpower, we live in a democracy. Are there ways that those things influence the church that maybe aren't always on our radar because we just exist in this kind of culture that we should be aware of?
1: Well, I think it has, you know, it has influenced the church. We have to, we have to acknowledge the fact that the cultures that churches are in are influencing factors upon them. Right? And so that is true whether we're talking about America in the 20th and 21st century or we're talking about Rome in the 4th century. I think one of the easy things we can see that American democracy has influenced upon the church is in the way that we structure our churches as far as the polity of them goes. When you look across church history, you see a very um, intense emphasis in the United States upon congregationalism. Now, I think congregationalism is most consistent with the Scriptures. But it is interesting when you think about how a democracy and an American democracy might influence our thinking to see that as best, when many other eras of the church did not interpret the Bible that way as far as the polity and the leadership structure is concerned. So I think the short answer is yes, it is influencing the church, and probably in ways we, we don't really even recognize, um, because it is, we're the fish in the water, right? Um, but I think that's one easy thing that I can say, oh yeah, that seems like one of those things that might be uh, an influencer from the culture upon the church.
3: I'll just add to that too, when you look at political thought, our, what exists in this country is actually kind of grew out of you know Locke and Hobbes and the Enlightenment age, which is pretty young when you think of the history of the world, and those concepts of individual religious liberty existing in the individual and not in, the, in a church, authoritarian church or an authoritarian government, a uh, state, is relatively new. And so that birthed our country, which is awesome. But that actually allows the American church to exist in the way that it does. So it's almost like that had to be the the political system here for the American church to exist. So as we talk about this, it's important to remember that Christ's church is global and it pre-existed all of those things. And so in the ways that we think about our church in terms of political structure and political thought, the Lord predates all of that.
1: Another thing I think of that may, may move us a little bit away from p- politics, but cultural, is the sins that we take seriously versus those that we don't. Sins that are taken seriously in America are copyright infringement. And we see that in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Uh, that's not going to be an issue uh, in other places in the world. And even you know sexual morality, that I think is a big issue for the church in America. Uh, it may be that other issues, anger, jealousy, coveting uh, maybe bigger issues in other places whereas we would probably see those as not as significant Um, and that may be more culturally related than politically but I think that's another another thing that we have received from the America we live in.
0: Well in what ways let's turn the question around uh, how has the church affected the United States? How is the church good for America?
2: Recently Liz told me she's a CASA a volunteer, so she's a court-appointed special advocate for foster kids. And she told me she's realized from the short time she's been doing it that these people would not have help if not for the church. Like, if you took away everything churches did to help others, to help the poor, the least of these, the widows, the orphans, um, the state could not do it. Just, it's just not possible. Um, so I think that's one particular way that regardless of our political party or what, who we vote for, we have a responsibility as believers in God to follow Scripture and help the poor and assist the orphan.
4: And again, I, I say that, that um, we need to seek God's help and guidance and the power that it is for uh, us to uh, keep our church uh, very much involved with any of these organizations where uh because that's that's where it uh it comes in with the, the gospel and the way we um demonstrate ourselves and love for others in the church has effect and bearing on um, uh all of that and that's our primary goal is again to win those loss to the to our savior he loved us he died for us and we need to uh, to seek His will and what He wants us to do, Roger. I'd be curious to know, from your perspective, are
0: there specific ways that you've seen the gospel impact your culture in your
4: life through the church? Oh yes, of course. I was raised in the church and you know, all my life, and uh, and it's uh, it's affected my life, of course, all the, all the way, and it's uh, there's no doubt about that. And it's been a, a powerful thing that has moved me and all that I've done throughout my life, whatever that might be, my moves, my terms and service, and uh, just uh, every bit of my life. And uh, I'm talking about led, led me right to my wife and all that is involved with her and with her with my life. And um, and that's had a big bearing on, uh, on me and my home. Praise the Lord.
0: Uh, I was just reminded, in
4: your first response,
0: you were talking about just the privilege that it is to pray for our country. Amen. Um, that reminded me of 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I remember when Calvin was teaching through this uh, passage with the elders and deacons, that verse about God desiring all people to be saved isn't a plug for universalism, but um, you can read it as all kinds of people. It's the Lord has put His church in America and China and countries all over the world, and it's the privilege of believers in those countries to pray for those countries. If we are not going to pray for Savannah, Georgia, who will? We have the privilege to do it here. One last question on the topic of the American church that I hope we don't get derailed for too long on this. But I, from my perspective, I'm a millennial and I work very closely with Gen Z people born, you know, they don't have a memory of 9 11, the younger generation. Um, from my perspective, from my vantage point, I see our country and the church in generations older than me, there were factors of the way that the world operated, the the kind of national threats that we experienced, the ways we went to war, the kind of existential threats, thinking of the Cold War, that it seems, again, this is before my time, but it seems like um, the church and our culture, it seems like things were able to go more hand in hand compared to like once I was born, and my upbringing, you know, the Cold War ended, the, the Iron Curtain fell the year I was born. Suddenly, national threats really changed in our collective imagination. And coupled with that, you have legitimate threats to the church, I would say, in the forms of liberalism. And I think of the conservative resurgence that happened through the 90s, where it's almost like there, there were spiritual and national threats kind of in the mid 20th century, that kind of got compressed into these spiritual cultural threats. And, and yeah, I just think of my upbringing being very centered around kind of culture wars, kind of language and that sort of thing. That when I am, sorry, I'm getting to a question. <laughs> I'm big on context. When I walk side by side with our college students, I sense that there, there potentially could be kind of a throwing the baby out with the bathwater where they say, "Well, see those, those national threats of the mid 20th century didn't turn out to be anything. The Cold War just ended for no apparent reason. It, just, it was just over. And so maybe those threats of secularism and postmodernism aren't really that bad. And so, yeah, so we come to the question. For future generations moving forward, how do we as the church in America rightly assess those kinds of threats, cultural threats, in ways that are not overreacting, uh, but ways that are appropriately reacting? Your thoughts.
1: I'll jump in while uh, everyone else is thinking. I think one of the things that it's crucial for us to do is look to Jesus and see how he himself responded to um, significant threats in the Gospels, right? And I think of um, the disciples in a boat, freaking out when the waves are crashing over and they think they're gonna die and Jesus, awakened from sleep, stands before the storm and says, peace be still, and it's still. You know, or he's coming against a legion of demons, which would be a really terrifying thing for me. Uh, and, and then you know, even in that moment, it's a calmness, a steadiness. And I think one of the things that we, we need to do politically is to be students of history, especially church history, and be able to see how these major crisis moments have happened throughout redemptive history. And think about how did Jesus respond when he was faced with something that's significant like this. I think that there is a tendency for us, especially today, to lean towards alarmism and kind of a freaking out over, things aren't going our way, what do we do now? Um, and I think we've, just, we've got to constantly be reminding ourselves that we are a part of a kingdom that transcends this one that will not end. And I think if we can bring that balance to the kinds of crisis moments we see, we can speak to them directly with a wisdom and, and an insightfulness that says, this is a big deal and we need to be concerned about this without being alarmist you know without being or feeling like we have to throw extreme language out to get people to come to our side so i think that's one of the things that we can do to help us balance and find that middle ground and a way maybe of articulating things to students that may be disillusioned to say yeah we've got a king and he is on his throne so we're not worried but this right here is a big issue and we need to be prayerful like roger's saying we need to We need to mobilize our church to address this in different ways.
2: I would say, I mean, echo everything Andrew said very good. Um, But two verses that, two passages of Scripture that came to my mind when preparing for tonight um, were Colossians uh, chapter 3, really all of chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But um, verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, close yourselves yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive us, the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Um, So I would say in culture wars or real wars that we encounter, we have the responsibility to be the gospel. We have to live these words well in crisis, um with people who disagree with us, we have the responsibility responsibility to be a light. You see a lot of fighting <laughs> even in times of crisis and I think we we have to be different. we have to be a light. so I would say what Andrew said.
4: and we also need to pray for us for us individually to uh, to be a um, source of unity for within us. each of us have a responsibility to seek that unity for our church that's a, individual responsibility that is ours and uh, that unity then will strengthen us as pursue the gospel that's what it's all about
0: i think that's a great segue for us to move toward the local body Jenny, you mentioned we have to be able to love those that we might disagree with. Well, let's move into our local congregation. What if you have deep political disagreements with a brother and sister in Christ? Um, We mentioned earlier how governments are these good things that still have been touched by sin. And so there is a capacity for good, and there is also a capacity for Uh, There's a capacity for justice, and there's a capacity for self-serving, which is truly unjust. How does that, that already not yet that we live in, how does that affect believers within a local body when it comes to disagreements in, in politics?
3: Well, I think personally, the way that I've tried to approach that is understanding that what you're fighting against, if you're stirred up about something politically like an injustice so your perceived injustice or a perceived evil <clears throat> and this person doesn't share your outrage at this evil or in the same way that you have it um, is remembering they're not your enemy you're not battling them the who you're battling is a foe that is not flesh and blood and so when you think about them obviously as a sister or brother in Christ you're joined to them in Christ and you will be with them in eternity. And so it's sort of keeping this eternal perspective versus these temporal things and understanding that what's at stake is that gospel witness is much bigger than being right on this issue and convincing them. It's great to have conversations about it. And you wanna persuade people to think biblically and call each other, but you may, not agree on how you think biblically about those things. Um, And so just the importance of loving people and seeing things rightly that they're not your enemy. I I tell my children this, like, it's okay to let somebody be wrong. Like, it's not your life mission to (laughs) make sure that they're right. But, um, you know, and the fact of the matter is, you could be wrong, you know, you Mm -hmm. can have the the log in your own eye and not be able to see. So just kind of uh, remembering and humility the importance of loving other people. And also, it's like if you have God on your throne, he's your king, and you're not on that throne, it's easier to love people. And when you find yourself kind of stirred up and putting yourself over people, and it's usually because you've got, you've taken the Lord off your throne and you put yourself on there. And when you're sitting on the throne, it's really easy to lose your perspective.
2: Yeah. I would add, um, I think, to remember that you are not in a church family with everyone who thinks the same way you do. Um, I would almost guarantee, and I'm gonna be controversial, there are people in this room who voted all three different ways in the last presidential election. So I think just having an awareness that there are believers that God has put in your family who uh, feel differently than you do about issues, who vote differently than you about issues, and so, choose your words carefully be kind be open be teachable be humble um especially on facebook (laughs) um i I would say there are people watching who love jesus and who walk in the same building as you do every sunday and who it's more important than that you are a believer in christ first and a someone who cares about politics second Um, I don't think that means sticking your head in the sand and saying politics don't exist, I won't ever vote. Um, I think God calls us to be part of our country, part of America, we're here, we're Americans. But we can't make it an absolute or a minority. We have to float somewhere in the middle.
3: Well, frankly, it'd be scary if everybody in the church thought the same way about every political issue because then that would be what united us wouldn't be the gospel that united us. It'd be our political position or our social position, or instead when you're diverse and yet you're united in Christ, you're testifying more loudly to his kingdom than you are if you all agree about everything on everything of this world, so.
1: I 100% agree with what Charlotte and Jenny both said, but I think just to emphasize what Charlotte said, I think this is so important, and we talked about the issues that are important and being able to point to those. This is one of those issues. Uh, can we dialogue with one another and love one another? Because I think y'all are right. People are watching. Our children are watching. And this is not just a challenge. It's an opportunity for the church to love one another despite their disagreements, which emphasizes the fact that our unity isn't anything but Christ. I think as a part of this, though, we've, we've got to get better at... Um, thinking critically about our own position and the position of other people. Because I think often what happens is we reuse cultural rhetoric that we've heard other people say for the purpose of winning. And the reality is nobody's being won, right? And and I think what we've got to realize is we have to humble ourselves and, and look to something greater than this temporary crisis that we find ourselves in, or this temporary difference, because a president has eight years max. Hopefully, you're going to be at a church much longer than that with a Christian community of people that are going to outlast a presidential term. And you've got to be able to to love them beyond that. And I think that the church as a whole is really struggling there, and and we've got to be more faithful um, to see past our differences, to think more critically about our own position and the position of other people, to not assume and write off. There's a lot that we've got to get better at. And I think we may look to sexual morality or a, a progressive sexual revolution as the greatest enemy and threat to the church. But I think the greatest threats to the church are not from without, but are from within. And this is one of those threats, and we've got to do better.
0: Charlie, you mentioned uh, in, kind of in passing that When we experience injustice, it leads to an an outrage. We feel anger. And I think it's important to highlight that that is a good thing, that if there's a child being abused, there is righteous anger. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. Where that gets tricky is when we have different ideas about how justice is best going to be accomplished in the world. So we can kind of like reverse-engineer, and we see, okay, you're landing at a different place politically. Well, this must mean that you don't care about justice in the same way I do. My faith, my justification leads me to care about justice, and the way I see it best playing out is X, Y, and Z. And so if you've arrived at a different endpoint, that must mean that there's something off. And now all of a sudden, this is where it's so important for us in the church, to not direct righteous anger at one another. But to stop, have a conversation, I would say in person, not even on Facebook, <laughs> uh, and, and let's go to Scripture together and see how we get to the endpoints differently. That's so helpful.
3: Tim, I would even say recognizing and acknowledging in, with graciousness that we may both see something as sin and hate the thing God hates, but because of our personal experience, our background, our perspective... Um, experiences, we may have an internal level of passion about that that another person doesn't share because they don't have the same, doesn't mean they think it's not sin, they don't have the same Um, Passion about it because of their own experiences or their own background or not knowing someone and like that has to You have to graciously allow that and that's my opinion I'm like just because you don't that may be a ten for you and it's a four for me like that has to be okay Like I love you and the thing that's a ten for me may be a five for you And that has to be okay, too because in love we can agree that sin but we can't take it out of the context of an individual person. You can't change the context of whether it's sin or not, but you can change the way as fallen people that are emotional creatures and intellectual creatures, how we think about that may vary. And that, you know, is that okay? Are we going to let, allow each other to be different and have different commitments about things than other people do?
0: And so much of this is getting back to, that's what the church is. Mm-hmm. We are a body that, praise the Lord, we don't have the exact same passions, but God in his wisdom has called all kinds of people to himself. Something that Jonathan Lehman and Andy Naselli talk about that I think is so helpful in their book is they talk about straight line issues versus jagged line issues. A straight line issue being something that you can go from scripture to a direct, okay, abortion is murder, period. That's a straight-line issue. A Christian cannot disagree on that statement. Jagged line issues get to things where there is not a direct Scripture verse to go to application. So universal health care, that's an incredibly complex issue where you're going to be trying to weigh and apply wisdom to achieve justice. It's going to be a jagged line. You're going to have to give some here... Back and forth maybe immigration to where you say okay my neighbors and my children are image bearers that i think if we let in more immigrants it could affect our livelihood and our economy my neighbors and my children so i'm interested in protecting my neighbors and my children and so i would be for less immigration where someone else would say look at what's happening at the border look at these image bearers who are being treated this way we must do something about that and have compassion on them because they're image bearers. The, the straight line issue is that all people are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and compassion. The jagged line issues are when it comes to figuring out what to do <laughs> based on those truths. I think criminal justice reform is, is another one of those that falls into image bearing and, and, and justice. We know that there, there must be justice that happens uh, when crimes are committed, and yet can we evaluate our, our laws to, to determine are, are, are the laws that we have just across all demographics and populations, and once someone is in the criminal justice system, how is that image bearer treated even if they are guilty of a crime? Um, how can we rightly assess what issues are straight line issues and what are jagged line issues?
1: Well, I think the first thing that we can say and should say is that the straight line issues are the most important issues. And so I think that brings a, a level of confidence that we can have. Therefore, the jagged line issues are, are not necessarily, though they're still important, not as critical. And so I think that's one thing I would concede at the very beginning. Uh, I think the straight line issues are going to be the most important issues. I think we can lean on one another though with those crooked line issues, especially our elders um, who are leading us and trust that the Lord is giving them discernment on those issues.
2: I would say the straight line issues, abortion is murder, how people come at solving that problem, he talks about this in the book, it's a very good book, I highly recommend it, (laughs) Um, are going to be different. So someone might picket an abortion clinic. Someone might work at a pregnancy center. And I think if you're looking from the outside, you would say, well, how come they're not coming with me to this clinic to protest? They must not care about abortion the way I do. I think that's the tendency is to assume, based on how someone's dealing with a straight line issue or a crooked line issue. And I think we have to zoom back and know that if they're in our body, our local church body, then they are a believer, hopefully. Um, And we can trust that they're saved by the same gospel we are, and we can assume the best of intentions instead of assuming the worst.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I think that that example is so helpful. The, The straight line issues get back to the truth. So abortion is murder. But if we say, well, you're not being a faithful Christian unless you picket this clinic, all of a sudden we've we've gone too far we're we're going past what scripture says and we're binding consciences in a way that is not helpful for the local body i'll just read a quote from from the book uh, it says so it is okay to talk about so is it okay to talk about jagged line issues with fellow christians yes but only if we do it with the right spirit and right proportion be strict with yourself and generous with others don't become so preoccupied with jagged line issues that you're divisive about them Jagged line issues should not be so important to you that they're all you want to talk about. I think that pulls on principles from Romans 14. At the end of the day, we must welcome one another as God has welcomed us in Christ and recognize that there is Christian freedom on some issues that we can't be judgmental towards someone who has a stricter position than us, or we can't look down on someone who has a stricter position than us, and we can't be judgmental towards someone who, who expresses more freedom on an issue.
1: Christians... Uh, are concerned about other people fundamentally, right? That's who we are. We're concerned about uh, the souls of others and we're concerned about their life now. And so uh, we insert ourselves into the political sphere, not to win battles, but to create a society that does allow for human flourishing of our neighbor. And if we don't do that, then I think we are not being faithful to love others as we love ourselves.
2: I've been reading the screw tape letters. I don't know if y'all know what that is. C. S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screw Tape Letters from a Elder Demon to a Demon Apprentice sort of thing. C. S. Lewis, yes. Um and there's some some uh pages in there about politics which are really interesting. Um and I wrote down one of the quotes from there that says Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life for the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. Um, so I'll answer your question with that quote because I think we do have the responsibility Satan desires the opposite. <laughs>
4: so, If you're too strong and you're... Uh, in your political view, or attack that. And I think it does affect, then, your witness. And um, I think that that's important that you be aware of that, because that's uh, we have some pretty volatile things in our politics these days. And and I think being careful about how you handle that, being aware of how you handle it, uh, it could very easily affect uh, your witness, and our witness is for one purpose one purpose only, and that's to win, win people to Christ.
0: When we see injustice, there should be righteous anger, and yet we also, as the body, are called to be slow to anger. And so I think with one another, um, yeah, that's the admonishment that we would, we would do that. Well, I would like to close our time by reading um, some Scripture to encourage us. This is from Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. A few verses later, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Tonight, we are concluding our summer series with a conversation on the church. The panel is going to be made up of the elders of Bull Street, and whether you have just started attending or you've been attending Bull Street your whole life, we're encouraging everyone to come here a conversation on how Scripture informs our doctrine of the church and how we at Bull Street are striving to be a faithful representation of the body of
3: Christ in our local context. I hope to see you there.